This is The Gas Giants. I'm Tom and that's Gav. Today's episode, or the current episode, whichever one it is, uh, is about a book by uh, Cozy Fanny Tutti called Resisters, uh, a fairly recent book that is, well, I was interested in it and proposed it for an episode here because it covers a number of things that have interested me. First of all, Delia Derbyshire, the um, now thankfully at least somewhat renowned specialist in electronic music who worked for the BBC Radiophonic Workshop for about a decade. It's by Cozy Fanatuti and talks about her life to some extent. Um, and she's the one of the members of Throbbing Gristle of the Kuma um, um, Transmissions, Kuma Transmissions, is that what it's called? Um, yes. And moved on then to uh, become a proper establishment art figure. Um, and it introduces me to something I it was new to me as this uh, interesting uh, medieval lady uh, from England uh, called Marjorie Kemp, who was the author of the first autobiography written in vernacular English. So I made Gavin read it, and um, here we are. Uh-huh. Um, it's yeah. actually turned out to be quite interesting, though not entirely as I had hoped, but uh, we'll get well, through an episode. Um, yeah, that, as, as you had hoped is pretty good, but as you had imagined, maybe. Yeah. Because a number of rabbit holes have appeared, but they're not maybe the rabbit holes that you thought were going to appear. Right, right, right. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure how to structure this. Uh, in fact, I'm rather unprepared. Um, well, let's let's start about to just, just talking about this idea of this book. Yes. There's this idea of putting three things that look on the face of it like they don't really have anything to do with each other and making them have something to do something with each other or revealing that they have something to do with each other, which actually is the brief of the artist in a way. Yes. Is is taking things that juxtaposing things that, uh, that on the face of it nobody would associate with each other and making that make sense. Yeah. That's that's certainly one of the briefs of the artist, yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and interestingly, I think the book, uh, well, Cozy has tried to do that in her book, uh, Resisters. Mm. Um, it is basically the story of a, of a period of her life, fairly recent period, in which she uh, was engaged in uh, producing a soundtrack for a film about Delia Derbyshire, uh-huh. and during which she happened to pick up and start reading a book, the book of Marjorie Kemp, uh-huh. um, and yeah, and and at the same time she was involved in the casting and production and so the whole project of trying to get her book art, sex, music made into a film. That's right. The, her previous book, which is essentially an autobiography. I haven't read it. You have. Um, yeah. Which which came out in 2017. This book was much more recent, like 2022, like last year or something, wasn't it? Yes, I believe so. Something like that. Take a look. Page, page, page. I need to put my reading glasses on. Yeah, I got that one right. Hmm. Uh, so this book, um, it... Has the has Cozy's answer to the question how to tie it all together, and I have come up with a different way uh, to tie two of them together. I'm not sure how to fit Marjorie mm. Kemp in here, but basically she was making this. Uh, she was making these films. Yeah, I mean one of them was a film about her. One of them was a film about Delia Derbyshire 
she was doing the soundtrack of. Mm -hmm. And she felt a kind of sisterly kinship, I would say, with mm -hmm. Delia, with Marjorie Kemp. And that's that's overtly the structure of the book, is that uh, yeah. struggles as as women. I mean, maybe this is the moment to reveal that I read halfway through the book expecting Marjorie Kemp to pick up a musical instrument of some kind before I realized that that wasn't going to happen. Yes. Yes. I mean, <laughs> she, go, she goes about as far as having um, some musical, Marjorie does, uh, some yeah. musical hallucinations and, yes. and, talks about, um, and talks about some of her music using musical allusion. Yeah, I think that's about we should it. Uh, we should maybe just stick in a quick uh, a, a quick sort of bookmark here. Marjorie Kemp lived from 1373 to 1438. Yes, and she came from Kings Lynn. Yes, which is quite near where Cozy is now living. Yes, so that's north uh, north of London and on the east coast of England. Yeah, so I like think it is east, Norfolk, east of Cambridge. Yeah, it's, it's what, what's known uh, as East Anglia, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't not, know Norfolk terribly well. I know Suffolk quite well. Though. It's not northern England at all. Um, no. But it is, it, it's, not, it's not the southeast as in, in the orbit of London, like home counties yeah. are. It's beyond there, I would say. And yes, she was a, she's, well, an interesting uh I, I love her book so far as I've read it so far, It's uh, which is not very much because I really haven't had time to get in there. But I got a copy of a recent translation. So she was a, uh, yeah, she lived during that period. She was the uh, daughter of a, a well-to-do merchant family in Bishop's Lynn, as it was then called. Uh, it That's was a, true, yeah. Uh, Bishop's Lynn was a trading port. Uh, with international shipping coming in and out, presumably, both directions mm. usually. Um, her father was the mayor and uh, for a while, and they were a prominent family, and uh, they were fashionably dressed. And, and she uh, got married to a what seems like a very suitable, appropriate for the times kind of husband, um, Got pregnant, had a lot of difficulties in pregnancy. It's not clear exactly what, but was 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 um, you know confined to home for a lot of it, and uh, seems to have had a long and rather serious madness following uh, childbirth, which I, I looked into this a little bit. Yeah, that does happen and continues to yeah. in uh, you know in a, a significant minority of. Um, you know, uh, postpartum situations. Mm -hmm. uh, something, there was some Swedish statistics I looked up, uh, you know, a couple of percent or something can, can experience psychosis after, mm. after giving birth. And in some cases it's prolonged. And coming out, of, so coming out of this, without going into the details but, uh, of what it was like for her, because I haven't read that much myself, coming out mm. of this, she had... A, a communion with Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. she, Jesus came to her in her, well, I would call it psychotic, whatever you want to call it, um, came to her and gave her courage and uh, the grace and the support to 
to recover, and she did. And she did fully recover as her, you know, her senses and, and carried on with her life. Um, she uh, tried to do some, uh, some business projects, uh, which failed. And then my interpretation is she then kind of lost interest in the secular life that she had been pursuing till then. Uh, mm -hmm. which, which, which was kind of like the equivalent of what you would, what I would today call a consumerist life, um, with the you know the the conspicuous consumption and whatnot, and she committed herself essentially to the lifelong project of becoming a saint. Mm -hmm. Now she failed because she is to this day still not a saint, but it seems like she really knuckled down. And spent the rest of her life pursuing this goal. There's um, there's some indication that she might also have um, switched or uh, lost interest in her husband because she gained a, uh, a passionate love for Jesus. It's, mm. there's, yeah. <laughs> there's an inkling there. I don't really have a strong uh, opinion about that yet. Mm -hmm. um, um, went on uh, pilgrimages engaged in very extravagantly um, demonstrative public pieties of crying, weeping, and and praying. Which, of course, was a very dangerous business at that exact moment in history. That's right, yes. There was, um, there was a sort of proto-reformist. No, it was literally reformist. It's sort of like a, a, a proto-Lutheran uh, thing uh -huh. going, across, going around in England called Lollardism. Uh, was it John Wesley? Is that his name? Was the uh, original? I think he's later. I got the wrong name there. Um, anyway, he was a reformer. Didn't he wanted to sort out the Catholic Church and things like having Bibles in vernacular English, um, and very oh, getting rid of the uh, the requirement for uh, for um, for for. Yeah, basically building down some of the authority of the church. In other words, that the church is, is necessarily involved in the mediation of people going to heaven. Mm -hmm. um, and these guys were called Lollards, and she was accused of that, among other things. Um, John heresy. Wycliffe. Wycliffe, that was the word Wycliffe I Wycliffe is the word yeah. you were looking for, yes. Yeah, he makes an appearance in, um, in Evelyn Wars, Between the Wars book, uh, vile bodies as the subject yes. of an early film. Um, anyway, yes, the, the, this was a time when church and state were um, working hand in hand during the run-up to and during then the Hundred Years' War when they were fighting with France every now and then. Um, mm. And maintaining authority was done more and more with the strict uh, application of uh, of the kingly law and the church law, uh, it was yeah. a it was a rather authoritarian time in in England. Yeah. Uh, so yes, she ran a, a lot of risks, um, and she was accused of um, heresy or lollardism or some other things. At least yeah. it was seven times, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's moments in the book where it seems like she's got one foot in jail most yeah. of the time. Yeah, 
you know, there's a there's there's a period when she's returned from one of her pilgrimages. She has three pilgrimages, and I think it was after the second one of them. Uh, she traveled to York, and then trying to get home from York mm. was like she just went went from jail to jail almost. Yeah. Uh, she got yeah. and 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 she, but she did have enough connection, especially through her husband and her you know her family's history, uh, yeah. to eventually get all of that stuff sorted out. And she, there were there were compassionate people who were involved in her everyday situation that helped her out too. Um, mm. But the the amazing thing, the thing that impresses me so much, is that she goes on and writes an autobiography. Um, she was, we believe, illiterate, uh, and well, she uh, that's that's actually where the whole sort of recording thing comes in. That's what, because what, what she was doing actually was recording. dictating it. Yes, what Cozy calls recording, because she tries to draw uh, draw this connection between. The, the the three female heroes herself, Delia Derbyshire and, and Marjorie Kemp, and, and and draws tries to draw them together in a number of ways, and uses the word recording, mm. and the book of Marjorie Kemp she calls a recording, and so that is her life story as best she could get it written down for her by uh, a number of scribes, uh, mm. I think about three or four were involved and then the book was in fact um of interest to some carthusians in england who transcribed it and corrected some errors and then it was lost until oh. 1936 yes that's right and then found in somebody's home while somebody was tidying up and yeah. and immediately became a sort of a literary sensation, oh. and oh, it's 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 got so many different ways of interpreting it. This is the part that I love about it: is, and I don't, I have no strong connection to uh, literature from that period, so it's it's hard. For, I I need to kind of get started mm. on yeah. just understanding what was the mindset of people around then. What you know, I mean. Obviously, uh, piety was, and public piety, big public displays of piety was common. People thought in terms of reality being defined as it is in scripture and by the church. Yeah. Which to me is, is, is highly, uh, well, I don't know, it's just alien to me. Uh, mm. so, so there's that aspect of it. And then there's, well... This, it's very, very difficult to get into the mind of Marjorie Kemp through these words because this was such oh. a very, very deliberate act that took years finding scribes. And she must have, in my opinion, must have been making up these stories in her head and telling them to people for many, many years. Quite possibly. Because yeah. think about Canterbury Tales, right? Uh -huh. That's... That's people telling each other stories as they yes. do pilgrimage. And these pilgrimages took, well, she spent a couple of years, I think, doing the, doing the one to Jerusalem there and back. I think maybe under two years. There's a lot of time you've got to spend. And, you know, she wasn't reading and writing during that time as a way of passing mm -hmm. the time. She would have been thinking and talking. Yeah. 
So stories about her, um, and she was clearly very keen to develop a reputation for being uh, an extraordinary and holy person. Somebody who had, she wanted to share the experiences that she'd had, the, what I think of as probably psychotic, but it doesn't matter, they were real to her, as well as the, you know, the, the troubles that she had, which she understood as being uh, a demonstration of the strength of, of God, that she's thrown troubles and she survives them through the, through the grace and support mm-hmm. of God. Um, yeah. The the question of uh, you know is this a, a work of invention or or not is I, I don't see how anybody can settle it. That's that's kind of yeah. part of what what I find so entertaining about it. Yeah, and ultimately it's irrelevant in a in a sense. Yeah, it it sort of yeah. is, um, but it. it it's it also isn't because if well yeah it, it's it's a no it's a really interesting point for me huh. um if she if she believed the words she written down was her own personal history yeah and then it sort of it, it sort of describes somebody who believed their own stories hmm. completely in advance of doing them you know what i mean so like Mm-hmm. She was deliberate. She did these things, and she remembered them the way it was. Mm-hmm. Um, or there's this question of revision, revising your histories, which I think is something we all do, more or less. I certainly do it a lot because my memory is very weak. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's Marjorie Kemp. Um, I'm not yeah. sure that the connection between her and the others is in, in Delia Derbyshire and well, uh, this, is, this is the way she often builds connections through really uh, small things. Like you mentioned, for instance, uh, the Marjorie Kemp being lo- book being lost for a long time and then yes. suddenly turning up in somebody's house. Yes. Delia Derbyshire's uh, school books turn up in the chimney place yes. of a house where she once lived in Coventry. Yes. And her, and and her this, lost tapes. And, and of course, the, the the whole thing of the lost tapes. We should uh, we should maybe talk about uh, because I think do do you have the name of the film that uh, Cozy was writing the soundtrack for? Yes, there? I think it was called Dealer Derbyshire: The Lost Tapes and Archives, or the the myths and the lost tapes. Yes, yes, yes. that's yes. right. It was a film made for BBC uh, Arena, which is a magazine art pro- arts program. Was it? Just, I thought it was for Channel 4. I thought the nope. Delian Mode was the one that was made nope. for Arena. Okay. A, nope, uh, it's got that. It's got the Arena beginning and end. It's got the, it's got the Brian Eno uh, guitar music. I, uh, yes, I'm, I'm getting mixed up because, of course, we uh, we had to listen to, or at least I had to watch a whole arena thing on Eno last week for <laughs> the John Hassel show. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah, I, I sat through that. So, yeah. Um, we forgot to talk you're... much about John Hassel. Yeah. Sorry, about Brian Eno that time. But I don't think we have time yeah. now. Well... But uh, you can you could always go back and listen to our show from last week uh, about the uh, about John Hassel's recording. It's well worth it. Or the week okay, before. Okay, so back to Delia Derbyshire. Yeah. Um, 
so as uh, as we said, born in Coventry in 1937, yep. wanted to be a musician, but was kind of more pushed more in the direction of maths, for which she had a fantastic talent. Yes. Ended up doing a, uh, I think, a double degree. Yeah. Can Oxford. I butt, butt in there and say she was um, active as a musician at a pretty high level? Oh, yeah. Um, before going to college, she ended up as, uh, doing piano at the National uh, Youth Orchestra level, uh, ah, which is no small okay. thing. Uh, she'd done a lot um, of music as, yes, as a no, child you and can, be you very can hear good that. at it. Um, and yes, when she got to Cambridge, uh, it was Gerton Cambridge. College, yes, she got to get Cambridge. Got to Carrington College. She did one year of mathematics, and then switched to music because she wasn't all that impressed with the way they were teaching mathematics. Wow, that's something. Of course, this is something that she's got um, in common with uh, with Stockhausen in a way that uh, that uh, hers town where she came from had been mostly destroyed yes well it, she was she was very young uh when yeah. coventry was hit three years old i think yeah. um something like that and the family well at least her and her mother i'm not sure about the father yeah that's right her mother her and her mother evacuated yeah after coventry was was badly hit um yeah. and but she it claims to have remembered the sound of the air raid sirens and the sound of the all clear sirens and the sound of the bombs yeah. as, as absolutely sort of like foundational in her uh, interest in uh, abstract sounds and their yeah. possibility uh, for incorporation into music. Uh, and she talked about that as being sort of present throughout her life. Yeah. Very interesting. There's a, uh, um, as of a film about Nico, uh-huh. which came out a few years back, and it opens with her and her mother. Uh, they moved outside of Berlin because uh, because of all the bombing and stuff, and they're, they're they're somewhere out in the in the countryside. But they've actually got a view of Berlin, and uh, she remembers being a child in Berlin, being having the crap bombed out of it basically yeah. and seeing the whole city on fire and exploding and she said that this sound was something that she was always trying to recreate yeah because it was the sound of defeat hmm. which was kind of interesting but yeah, yeah no it was actually with delia it was a little bit different because she remembered very clearly the sound of the air raid silence and the sound of the all clear Mm-hmm. And she stresses in one of her interviews that this is actually electronic music. In a way, yeah. In a way, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the, 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 when, you know, in, in the modern period, in the period when, when we had moved on from, let's say, the 1960s, let's say we're in the 1970s and beyond, uh, mm. the question then of what constitutes music is definitely pretty subjective um we used to be mm. able to say well if you're playing musical instruments you know in the old days you could you could sort of like define it like that there's a musician that we we know what that is that's music uh somebody mm. singing that's music but yeah i mean delia was part of the transition from being able to from that to being able to make music out of 
almost any sound, so long as it is suitably put together into a musical work. Yes, exactly. So she, um, it takes her a long time to actually get into uh, into the BBC and into the radiophonic uh, workshop. Well, let's quantify long time. There. Well, we should point out here, the other broadcasters, uh, Rai had uh, heard established an, uh, a radiophonic or, you know, electronic, Music suite, workshop yeah, yeah. production place yeah. in Milan in 1955. Yep. The Vidia was uh, in front of everybody in Cologne. They actually established a studio in 1951. Yeah, but not really, because the French had done it, uh, started in the 40s with Music Concrete. Ah, yes, exactly. Radio France, I was forgetting about them. Yeah. Uh, and so... The BBC, I think the official opening date is 1958. Yep. They'd come to the table a whole lot later. And anyway, they weren't even calling it a studio for electronisches Kunst or, or you know, something like that. They were calling it a radiophonic workshop. And it didn't have a remit for art or music at all. It no. was there to produce sound effects, basically. Yeah, it wasn't even the Labour for Acoustisch Musikalische Grenzprobleme. No, not, <laughs> which, not remotely. No. Which, which is what the Didier came up with, which yes. w- wonderful. You can, <laughs> you've got to love that, really, haven't you? Grenzpro- <laughs> Grenzprobleme actually has a, um, ha- has a mathematical meaning as well. Um, ah, yeah. I see. Yes, I mean it's not the only it's not the only meaning that's in use here because you you understand what it means. But a Grenz problem is called a, a boundary conditions problem in English, ah. uh, which is a a certain kind of differential equation uh, situation. You know, kind of problem way of it, it. It's a it's a context in which differential equations appear that can sometimes be solved. Ah, right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes, that would that would be a very DDR thing to do, wouldn't it? Yeah. Bring some bring some, bring some serious technical terms in there. Um, yeah. So the studio had opened in 1958. Yes. Uh, and it actually took um, Delia a long time to get into it. Uh, she was she was turned down for a for a, a, a technician's a recording a sound engineer's job by Decca first, yep. just because they wouldn't have women. Yeah. Uh, but um, I don't but of course, think my my impression was that she wasn't spending. It wasn't like it was just a few years between graduating and getting into the BBC, and then she got into the radiophonic workshop pretty quick. I mean, she mm. said. I mean, this is one of the things that's interesting that it, that that really fascinates me about Delia is she set her mind to it, mm-hmm. uh, it because she knew what was going on in Europe in continental Europe, and yes, was. Very attracted to it, very, uh, you know, really interested. And she felt, well, you know, how can I do some of that? The only possibility is at the BBC. And the only thing they've got going on uh, where where we can do this kind of stuff is the radiophonic workshop. So she pushed and pushed and pushed and she got in and it didn't, it didn't take, it was like just a few years, wasn't it? Like three years or something? Yeah, maybe, well. I mean, she went well, to work for the, the UN as uh, as, uh, uh, as a language, I think, a translator or a teacher. Um, uh, yeah, and, and a, a teacher, I think. And she was applying for positions at the BBC uh, repeatedly 
while she was huh. there. And she wasn't even away for a year before coming back from Geneva to, uh, uh, okay. to, work, uh, to work at the BBC. Well, the Radiophonic Workshop um, had actually, right from day one, employed women. Mm, definitely all right. Unlike, there. you know, some of the rest of the industries in, uh, in Great Britain. Yeah. And uh, it was uh, it was Daphne Oram, wasn't it? Yes. Who was uh, who was? Yeah, that's probably how it's pronounced. I, I've only read the name, not not heard it. So Oram, yes, probably how it's pronounced. Yes. But they were. Uh, I, I, my impression is that at the uh, at the beginning of the radiophonic workshop, they were using equipment that was like sort of ex army and ex radar stuff. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, what they could get their hands on. Um, Tape machines had not been in use all that long, maybe at that point, 20 years, not even mm-hmm. that, 15. And so, yeah, and, and the stuff would have been pretty, pretty wobbly in terms of reliability, hmm. the kind of stuff that takes a couple of minutes to warm up and stabilize, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and big, big and producing a lot of heat because it's all vacuum yes. tubes and valves inside. Yeah. Which is, uh, uh, I think, this, uh, this is covered in the film as well. That they were, they couldn't open the windows uh, yep. or or use a fan or anything whilst they were actually recording because it was all too loud. So that had to, they had to get to a stage where the heat was just unbearable yep. when they'd take a break and actually open the windows and and get and head out. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, as um, if you look at, did you? I looked at uh, some some photos of Maidavale because the radiophonic workshop was tucked in that uh-huh. big long building at Maidavale. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like a a World War Two construction that was that had no use, so the BBC ended up with it and did whatever. Mm. Well, no, it was a it was a, a roller skating rink, Maidavale. Yeah. And yeah, it was surplus. I've I've been there. I've played at least oh, at least two auditions in there. Yeah, <laughs> but between but but it wouldn't have been roller skating uh, during the war, would it? No, no. It was. Uh, it had been a, a business, a fairly large scale sort of business venture that had gone bust. Oh, okay. And rather than pull it down, uh, it got taken over by the fledgling. BBC, who, which of course had moved out of Alexandra Palace, and uh, and was looking for more studio space. Yeah, and I, I sh- I'm sure Paul's been in there as well. Yeah, yes. Uh, so. You could, uh, and if listeners are interested, we've got a two-part interview with Paul Tiagi, and he talks about uh, about making Peel sessions, and of course Peel sessions were recorded there. Yeah, and a lot of recordings are done there. Yep. No, certainly the big room was for the orchestra, mm-hmm. and uh, and yes, in a in a corner of that of that whole complex was the radiophonic workshop, a very small corner by the looks of things. Yes, yes, they expanded a bit over time, but uh, I mean, it was the the situation was limited because of contracts with the uh, with the musicians' union, so the musicians that were that worked for the BBC had their demarcation, which mm. meant that uh, stuff that was being produced elsewhere couldn't be in competition with that. It couldn't be taking, yeah. uh, you know, a non-labor, uh, sorry, non-union version of their, their work. There yeah. was also the thing that the BBC doesn't hire 
composers. In other words, it doesn't have staff composers. Um, yeah. So that meant that they were doing neither music nor composition. They mm. were <laughs> they were making the sounds of exploding Daleks, you know? mm. <laughs> uh, which and and actually a lot of it was sound effects. But uh, but it was also they they were also doing what was essentially soundtrack music and theme music. Uh, mm -hmm. to some of which is pretty pretty fancy composition i think mm. um, so in other words they just managed to sort of like slip it by quite exactly how they did i'm not sure um mm. probably it had something to do with the the weirdness of the sounds themselves yeah uh this is and uh, i have somewhere on the shelf uh, a biography of schnitke mm-hmm and uh, I'm I'm just uh, just dragging this out of my memory because I don't have time to look for the book, but I know that Schnitke at one stage uh, got in hot water for writing music that was a bit too adventurous, and his way out was to start writing music for public information films. Yes, and um, this kind of stuff, or, or you know, uh, short movies, because the the Russian film industry was uh, was was going full tilt. They needed music. They needed yeah. stuff. And uh, basically, if it was accompanying moving images, nobody really cared. Yeah, production music in a sense. Yeah, yeah, just exactly. call that category production music. Yeah, because um, you can actually think, you can actually see it, can't you? That how sound effects, uh, how some of those companies that do production music do both sound effects and music yeah. music and, and blur the line between the two yes. exactly yeah, yeah. so I, I think there was a lot of a uh, lot of really experimental music that uh, that managed to get under the wire because uh, because it was it was kind of pretending that it wasn't there to be listened to you know? <laughs> right right so uh, yeah i was trying to explain production music to to ava a few weeks ago uh said well mm. think about muzak right that was a that was a music that was composed and recorded specifically to be not listened to. Mm -hmm. right. In an elevator, in a supermarket, or wherever, yeah. right? Um, but of course, a lot of people were listening to what Delia Darbyshire was doing, even back then. Yes, although a lot of them didn't know her name. Yeah. Because they, na they didn't give name credits to anybody that worked at the Radiophonic Workshop. They could name credit... Um, a, a composer uh, or whatever, yeah. but but and and the radiophonic workshop. So hmm. That's the that's yeah. The but there was a there was a sort of collective thing. Yep. Which I suppose is another thing that uh, that uh, Cozy has in in common, because uh, both Coombe and Throbbing Gristle were supposed to be collectives. Yes. Yes, they were sort of yes. Yeah, in the sense of collectives that are thoroughly dominated by certain psyches. Yeah, well, that was uh, that was what actually uh, kind of led to the end of of the whole the whole thing. But uh, but the there was a very much collective vibe to the, to all of their actions. Yes. Yeah. Which uh, which comes through a lot in the in both of the books. Yeah, so uh, of course the the one thing that everybody knows Delia Derbyshire for is uh, is Doctor Who. Yeah, which was pretty, uh, pretty revolutionary for the for the time. Well, not um, just that; it's also superb. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's it is. it's an absolute monument. 
Yeah. And having learned recently, I you know it was a, f- a few months ago, I guess, that I got the idea for this episode. Um, I, it was only then that I uh, I ended up listening to a BBC radio production that I managed to download, which um, I think uh, Brian Hodgson was there explaining what he recalled as uh, how it was made, and he gave a little oh, bit of good. and he gave a little bit of a breakdown of of the parts of it and uh i was dumbfounded listening to this because uh i mean i won't go into the in, into that breakdown myself you can just find that yourself it's much better than i can do but can one, you put it on the substack page well it, yes yeah, yeah. It, it's well it's already included in one of the uh one of the things i i i, I gave you for oh. that but he, he some, or at least one of these guys on that, that program made the comment of it's a, it's a remarkable thing in that it's so uh, catchy and recognizable and in a sense easy on the ear, but at the same time impossible to understand uh, in terms yeah. of what it is. Um, yes. And it, and it is, it's, a, it's actually quite simple uh, there's not that many tracks or components to it, mm. but they fit together so well, <laughs> so, yeah. so well. You've heard the interview, I think, in which uh, Delia describes the moment when they heard it for the first time fully assembled, which was when they were dubbing it from four, uh, from four tracks down, from four recorders down to one. So they had... Uh-huh. Uh, she was up. She was. They had to synchronize the start of four tape yeah. machines, and so one guy, I th- which might have been Hodgson, and her pushing the buttons and then listening to it as it as it gets recorded in a mix. Uh, <laughs> just imagine that. This is the this is the thing that I found so extraordinary thinking about um, this work is how something so new came out of almost nothing and it's yeah. certainly not out of nothing obviously it's not but it's out of this old surplus stuff you're talking about test mm. gear and you know uh, audio generators that were never intended for musical applications just two track tape decks and whatnot they had good ideas delia in particular was i mean it was delia that did the uh, the Doctor Who thing, um, putting it together. A lot of it was, a lot of that was um, sort of a manipulated, tape-manipulated acoustic sounds uh-huh. uh, uh, with some uh, electronic. The important thing there is, like, it's not important actually, but it's it's part of the fun history of electronic music, is uh, the French were into their musique concrète. Yeah. So that means make recordings of real world sounds and then make something completely new out of that by mm. manipulating tape manipulations and being French and being artists, they came up with a philosophy to go with it too. An incomprehensible, mm-hmm. well, a partly comprehensible philosophy <laughs> to go with that. And, and the Germans uh, under the particular influence of uh, Mr. Carl Seins, um, mm they had to go in exactly the opposite direction and insist philosophically that the correct way to do it was to use electronically generated sounds, 
not recordings and and to synthesize things what well, synthesize well com- assemble hmm. uh layer by layer from the com- from the from the component sounds uh and you know the pragmatic british they just it doesn't matter whatever's 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 hmm. quicker way of getting to the destination <laughs> yeah and um so you know one of the sounds there was uh, a uh I, I'm, I'm not i'm not gonna get into it um the hmm. we'll, we'll we'll separate that we'll separate that one uh recording out it's really good and it was brian hodgson that did the sound effect of the uh materializing and dematerializing tardis uh hmm. which in some episodes is sounds really really bassy and thumpy it's like massive sound and a lot of them it's it's a little toned down but some in some of the early 70s stuff it's really of course outside of um outside of the radiophonic workshop she uh she sort of branched out and uh another thing which which we're both very keen on was uh was white noise yeah that album (laughs) yes yeah my sister had a copy of that We've yeah, talked, we've I talked about it before it. here, haven't we? Uh, I think we might have mentioned it a couple of times in yeah. passing. Um, just the last night in preparation for this, I made Lottie listen to Here Come the Fleas. Yeah. Yeah. And that was... Um, yeah, I think she was she was quite overcome with that because it's you know it's nineteen sixty eight or something. <laughs> yes, yeah, and it really it, it doesn't sound old at all. No, well, yes and no. Yes, it's it's great. Uh, no, I think it stands up. I think it holds up. Um, yeah. And then it was thanks to Chris Blackwell, uh, whose rum I today enjoy uh, drinking. Oh, yes. Chris Blackwell financed the uh, the production. But uh, I, I came across something here, actually, because uh, we're talking about connections between the three stories. Uh, there's a moment in... Um, oh, it was actually an interview for Noisy with Cozy mm. Fanny Tutti, yeah. where she's talking about her, um, her unconventional guitar technique. Yes. And she said, I want to be able to, to use the guitar like a soundboard and do the actual playing with the effects pedals. Yes. And uh, there is a moment in the film when uh, when Delia is in the... Uh, is in the Radiophonic Workshop and she gets visited by Brian Jones. Yes. Which, of course... In the film, he's, his hand with the frilly... Cuff comes in. Well, the, yeah, we well, she, she did that. She, there's the inter, in the interview, she remembers him having frilly cuffs. Yeah. But, um, but she was astonished that he sat down in front of the front of all of the like machinery and started trying to play it like an instrument. Yes. Yeah. And that, for me, tied in with that quote of of uh, of um, cozy, you know, reducing the, an instrument to a mere sort of noise making machine and doing and then actually adjusting the tones with uh, with exterior stuff yes yeah well th- you know that's a that's a legit way of uh of doing things uh, oh yeah i've done it myself that's uh yes yeah. um i for for a while uh i would have described myself as 
a, a noise musician or performer or something mm. using guitar. But Throbbing Gristle, so when Throbbing Gristle was launched, so when Coombe decided, right, we're going to have to change direction, they decided they were going to be a, a, mm. a band and mm. focus on, on music and concerts and records. They were quite deliberate about being um, different in the way that they're going to play. Um, mm. And somebody said, I can't remember which one of them it was, it wasn't Cozy, saying that, well, whoever was going to play guitar had to not be able to play guitar. So, well, mm -hmm. I'll give it to Cozy and, uh, and that'll, that'll work. And she, she took to it and stuck with that. Hmm. I think, and that's, uh, you can see her playing, you know, attacking the strings in a variety of ways. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, that was 75, 76, 77 was kind of yeah. when that was getting going, which I was a point good, out, good time for uh, effects pedals. Yeah, I, I should point out that the, uh, in you know, this, this book, Art, Sex, Magic, which is, uh, you know, 500 pages long or something, uh, you get halfway through it before there's any talk of throbbing gristle yeah yeah and the uh, the earlier stuff when she's when she's messing around with coom and doing all of these these incredible uh theatrical actions they are th that is really the more interesting part of the book why is that uh, because we end up in Throbbing Crystal, then there's a record company, then there's a whole load of mither about contracts. Every music biography has a section which you have to plough through, which is all about contract disputes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. Well, all those things need to be figured out. But good thing they did their own record label. Mm. Yeah, oh, that would have... I, I'm not sure Throbbing Crystal could have been the success to the extent that they were, and I would say they were, um, hmm. uh, any other way, I'm not sure they could have. And the other thing that you take from this book, uh, which is a very valuable message for all of you out there, you know, if you are in some kind of art collective that sprays piss, shit, and animal brains all over the audience, keep a diary. Yes. You yes. know, this is, the, I'm sure this book is only there because she kept a diary. Yep. It's yes. really so valuable. And you don't you don't you don't have to be doing those things to audiences to keep a diary, by the way. No. No. Yeah. I suppose and, not. Uh, well yeah. and even if you're I, doing thought... relatively modest things to an audience. Yeah, I've never done that to audiences <laughs> and I keep a diary. But yeah, diaries do do help when you when you finally get to write your autobiography. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um well I'd like to propose uh, a different interpretation of how to put um, Delia and and Cozy together. Okay. The way Delia, sorry, the way Cozy did it in the book, I I don't know quite what to say about it because on the one hand, you know, Coombe's kind of awesome to the extent that I understand it, which is not very much. Huh. Uh, Throbbing Gristle is like the vanguard, the literal Leninist vanguard meaning of the word vanguard oh. of so much that I hold dear. It was the the spirit of punk rock manifest in noise, oh. um, and uh, and managed to 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 have that authenticity as. Oh. I mean, punk rock is is like a is like a 
an impossible thing as a as a spirit mm. as a as an idea it's an impossible thing to sustain in a commercial world yeah right it just can't be done but they they expressed it yeah so probably because they weren't punk well they weren't I mean, they, they had they, a, they had a big di- deal uh, keeping a certain amount of distance right. from the punk movement what which i they said saw was, as a, what i said was the the spirit of the aesthetic the oh yeah no that was that was clear to me rock. yeah yeah but uh, but trying to trying to inv- avoid getting getting caught up in exactly. punk was uh, was was quite a quite a big deal for them because they, avoiding getting caught up in commercial music at all yeah right because they said it's not us you know yeah. it's uh, we're 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 we make industrial music this isn't this isn't our yes exactly style. exactly how the word industrial music got involved i would like to understand more maybe it's in the book and you can explain it all to me but i know that they named their their they, the 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 word became an embarrassment later i mean actually curiously oh. enough cozy seems proud of it in in resisters but industrial music as a genre became an embarrassment not very much later ah all right um, okay uh, just something awful but um i you know i i try to avoid the term but I mean, for me, let's sound defined terms here a little bit. It's strictly uh, the, the most the top, the top priority of the aesthetic is uh, to confront complacency. Mm, yeah, yeah, You're very okay much with that, so. right? Yes, and to do to uh, you know, and to have fun at the same time to satisfy mm. the the artists satisfying their own personal mm. needs and urges. Uh, and, and desires at the same time, but the well, you know, the, the overriding sort of if there if it can be said to be political, it's it's the complacency of society mm. needs somehow to be shaken. I mean, the the other thing that comes out certainly from the uh, from the autobiography is that this lady is absolutely fearless. Mm. You know, there's some of the stuff that she gets up to, and and particularly all of her career in sex work. Yeah. And uh, you know that is that takes the courage of a lioness. Yeah, yeah. She d- mentioned, I think, that um, having, you know, basically been estranged from her family home at a pre- mm. fairly young age was probably. Uh, had something to do with that. First of all, it's probably partly why she got kicked out because she was fearless. It is, yeah, exactly. But also that that gave her, you know, if you can survive having that happen to you about the age of fifteen or whatever, yeah. then then you've got some skills going forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, nobody skills. can ever hurt you again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So my so my so my theory here about mm-hmm. trying to build. Uh, it. So the way uh, the way Cozy has done it is is on a fairly contemporary sort of feminist theoretical analysis, which is, I think, rather unpersuasive and and gets a little repetitive in the book. Don't want to have to be uh, to go too much into that, uh, uh, but you know, I I was I was I, I found it wearisome eventually. Hmm. There's another way of looking at it, and one of the key to this is that when Delia worked for the for the BBC Radio Forum workshop from about what was it sixty three to about for about ten years, yeah, I haven't got the exact dates there, 
And this was the 60s. Mm-hmm. And for some of those years, she was living the swinging London life. Mm-hmm. You know, with... Um, you know, with 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 the sex, the rock and roll, the uh, the drugs, the hmm. and all the arts world stuff going on. It was she was, and then yeah. um, things changed. She she was growing older. So if you think about this, here here's an analysis for you. Um, when you are young enough, let's say between twenty and twenty five, and you have ambition, you can put up with a lot of shit. If you're successfully pursuing your ambition, right? If you think you're making progress, you can put up with a lot of stuff. And clearly, Cozy did that too. Um, Delia did, and she was superbly good at the work she was doing. I mean, to me, it's just astonishing how good she was. And she was pursuing that ambition. But it was, she had to put up with a lot of shit at the BBC. That was terrible working conditions. And Hmm. uh, she wasn't, she was, because she was so good at it, she was often leaned on for for a lot of work. So she was overworked. Um, And how long can you keep that up for? So there's an ambition side to it, which is, gives you the energy. That's the supply side uh, and then there's the environment that you're working in what can you put up with there's a demand side as well so i get sorry i mean the ambition is probably the demand you really want to get something out of it uh the supply is the amount of energy you can put in um these things tend to change over time your ambition may be fulfilled she'd done as much work as she could felt she could do and the the ability to put up with the conditions and the lack of recognition and the lack of mm. money, what she really kind of deserved, eventually she left and she dis- and there's in a few places this came recording came up about how she described or and it's been it's in the book written down in the book as well how she described how she didn't really she's answered now why do you leave she, talking about it many years later how mm. why did you leave BBC well. I don't really know. Self-preservation, probably. Hmm. And then she went on to say something that's very, very striking for me. She said, that time, the world was out of tune with itself. 72, 73, 74. Everything was out of tune with itself. Hmm. Now, that's a way of describing the transition from the hopefulness of the 60s the uh, Mm. creativeness and on into the 70s and if you go look at early throbbing gristle Mm. you couldn't better represent a world out of tune with itself yeah so if you can if you can think about a, a a handing off of artistic work that represents its zeitgeist from Delia, 1960s, the psychedelic creativity of that time. Sort of anything goes, we can try it so long as it's, uh, so long as it's cool, so long as it works. But, and then everything goes sour. 
we've mm -hmm. talked about it in the podcast in a number of contexts in the past, haven't we? Yeah. About oh, how yeah. the end of the 60s, how awful that must have been. I mean, we were too young yeah. to really understand it at the time. But, uh, and, and 70s, um, the transition into the 70s in the UK was, was probably very confusing and unpleasant. Uh, mm. If you were up in yeah. Hull, it was already pretty rough, and she was. They weren't, you know, in Hull they weren't. They weren't enjoying swinging London kind of no <laughs> pleasures. Um, and then the need to uh, to to come up with an art that that adequately expresses uh, the attitude of young people to the situation that they found themselves in, which has been given to them by previous generations. Hmm. Um, throbbing gristle, what a, what a response. Coombe as well. Why not? Yeah. Um, that's that's my, my take on it. There's a handoff. It's a handoff, uh, an mm -hmm. artistic handoff according, appropriate according to, uh, according to the zeitgeist. Mm. I mean, Delia's work had to end one way or another. Um, she's her, I, I mean, the, the book recesses talks about Delia as being mm. oppressed and whatnot. Uh, yeah. But also I think it had a lot to do with the fact that, uh, that maybe she saw that all of these skills that she'd spent a generation honing and putting together that, um, the the new machinery that was being used yeah. just wasn't going to need any of that. Right. Yeah, she basically you know, nobody was, was manipulating tape anymore. And you know, and we we've seen that once before in our podcast very clearly. Yeah, Memoroglu. Ah, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, and also the also became very disaffected around you know in the in the seventies. Maybe maybe that was uh, that was a big part of it then. Yes, because like I said yeah. at the time, the. In the 60s, up until the transition to the use of commercially built synthesizers, uh -huh. um, the skills necessary and the cost of the equipment was, mm -hmm. was prohibitive for, for almost everybody. And so it was only a few specialists around the world who mm. had the facilities and were any good at it, and Delia was one of them. Yeah. So maybe, maybe that, was, that was it. I mean, Oh, it's certainly you know, a big did, part of it. She Certainly. did live long enough to see a lot of a uh, lot of her approach to music being taken over into techno and dance music. Yes, I suppose. And she she recognised that as well as yeah. as interviews where she talks about that. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, this doesn't seem to have been uh, any kind of problem for 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 Cozy, of course. No, because she's uh, she's one of uh, she's adapted. She's keep kept doing whatever she wants and yes. adapted what how she does it to whatever the demands they just buy a new synthesizer okay i'll find out how this works yes yeah she's you know? a very 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 different mind uh when it comes to the approach to music delia is one of the one of the uh, one of the few early people who was able to bring an understanding of mathematics and how acoustics works. I think she did understand, um, you know, physical acoustics as well to some extent. I'm not sure, yeah. uh, but the the understanding of how um, sounds can be how they can be composed from components 
So, for example, a sound, you can analyze the sound of a bassoon, and then you can sort of piece it together from component tones. Mm -hmm. And as you you complete the picture, which is very complex, so you need a lot of tones to add together to get it, you'll hear it getting closer and closer. Hmm. Um, and so, she, you know, she understood this kind of thing. Moreover, she hmm. understood how to translate things like notes, as in their note names, the positions on a, mm-hmm. on a stave, to frequencies, to tape speeds, and so forth, uh, hmm. and, and tape durations. Uh, this is all painstakingly annoying oh, God, yeah. stuff. So building those skills was... And and doing it with and building those skills specifically on that crummy old BBC Radiophonic Workshop equipment. Mm. Now that's one kind of approach. Cozy's is is much more, and I think it was true for others in the uh, uh, you know that she was working with with their instruments was, let's get the instrument and see what we can do with it. Right? It's mm. a let's um, it's almost like an improvisation with a thing until you find something you like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you make a note. The, the only thing of hers that I ever heard, um, that it wasn't Throbbing Gristle, but before we actually started this whole project of doing this episode, um, I used to buy The Wire, mm-hmm. and you get those CDs sometimes, The Wire Tapper. Um, yeah, probably after yeah. my time uh, being a Wire customer. Well, uh, Wire Tapper 16 had a track called from a uh, track from Carter Tutti mm-hmm. called uh, So Slow the Knife. Okay. Which was, uh, yeah, I suddenly listened to that a few times. That's, that's quite interesting because it's, it's kind of funny. On one side, it's just a load of sort of squeaking noises and somebody farting things out of a bugle. Yeah. But somehow, that's that's the parts, but the sum of the parts is so much greater than that. Yes. If you can yeah. do it, that's the, that's a nice way of making music, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's that, that's what really actually interested me and made me listen to this track several times. Hmm. <laughs> and that, and you listened to it several times before it, we 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 started approaching this this book. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd, uh, yeah, so I've, uh, well, uh, Wiretapper 16 came out quite a while ago. Yeah, yeah. but I've. Yeah, I mean, the, there's there's been a lot of music made roughly that way. Um, and I would probably count a lot of the stuff I've done as being, as being made roughly that way. It's a, uh, oh, mm. no, I can't really play this very well, but I can, I can make it some nice sounds out of it. I do these things with the knobs. And uh, now, what could we combine this with? And maybe it doesn't take very much, com- very much complication to find something that's actually rather nice. Especially now, this goes back to dealing. Especially if you've got a, um, if you've got a feel for melody. I don't really. Uh, Delia was was a was a master uh, melody. Yeah. Even though she wasn't yeah. a composer, strictly speaking, by the BBC's <laughs> oh, God. Europeans. But um, so the, we've we've both watched the film um, mm-hmm. since uh, since we've watched it. It's been taken down off of YouTube, but I dare say it'll be back. Yeah, uh, BBC stuff is often yeah, released quite well, heavily. We'll see. Patience. Keep keep looking. It'll it'll be back. Um, 
it's it's not bad. It's a kind of dramatized documentary, really. Isn't I it? think it's quite good. I mean, it's yeah, it's yeah. it's dramatized. It's it's light-hearted. It's playful. It's yeah. um, at the same time. I mean, you're you're a convinced and passionate cyclist, but did you not want to throw that fucking bike in the <laughs> canal by the end of it? Jesus Christ! Every time she walks across the seat screen, she's got to have a bicycle with her. Yeah, um, there were there. That wasn't the that wasn't the um, the conceit that most annoyed me. The one that did was uh, uh, was the mood lighting in every scene. Uh, it's oh. like, you know, come on, you're in a BBC studio. You really think you're just going to have one red lamp on a load no, of the desk over there? No, it's going to be script lighting. Of course it is. <laughs> uh, so, you know, and so, yeah, that, that kind of annoyed me a bit more. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that bicycle. But I, anyway, I didn't get much time to read the book of Marjorie Kemp, but I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I'm not sure how to tie Marjorie in. Uh, the... I think, if anything, the way we need to approach Marjorie is by trying to find the parallels between her world, which was where the the habits of thought of her time were so heavily dictated Mm. by the Bible and by Scripture, Mm. um, that... The Bible, sorry, that's the same thing, by Scripture and by the church, by church mm. doctrine. In other words, the, the orthodox interpretation of Scripture. Yeah. Um, where, you know, the, the, a way of thinking in which if something interesting happens, mm-hmm. so for example, one thing that happened in Marjorie's life was a, uh, a stone and a timber fell from the very top part of a, of a church that she was praying in and they clonked her on the head and people around her thought she oh my fucking god she that would have killed her it's big stuff right mm-hmm. and soon after uh she she regained consciousness and seemed to be unhurt um mm-hmm. and you know you or me might look at that and go say well what kind of damage have we got here how, how did this fall you know we'd look for physics right we'd look for yeah that sort of no that, not these guys. They have to divide it. Either this mm. is a, a miraculous demonstration of God's grace to a very special and holy woman who deserves it, yeah. or or she's, she's being in punished. league with the devil, or she's being punished uh, for 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 yes for being um, you know uh, unorthodox. Yeah, and these well, the, the and these are the two options for 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 thinking about it. Or the, the fact that, that she's actually miraculously survived means that she, you know, is, she is one with Satan. It's so complicated. But, yeah. but this is, but, but evidently there was, uh, there was so much of that going on. I think that we can, in fact, uh, draw a number of sort of parallels here. Mm-hmm. For example, I think that there's, there is such a thing as a, being within the church and being an accepted member of the church uh, is has a nice parallel in in modern media uh, mm. and show business and so forth and, and journalism and politics and so forth in public life. Right uh, there, it's possible to be excommunicated from public life simply by being cancelled one way or another. Mm. Right, 
And there are lots of ways of doing that by just the wrong utterances or hmm. some something from the past gets brought up and interpreted a certain way and you're out. Mm-hmm. And that is essentially a akin to an excommunication, don't you think? It's a uh, yeah, the privileges yeah, the privileges of membership, but it's and, and and the and the trick, the importance of an excommunication is that it's a reminder to everybody within the church, you'd better not step out of line. Here's the rules. Hmm. Yeah. So it's an it's a um you know you you punish a few in a rather dramatic public way in order to uh yeah. maintain discipline. Yeah. And yeah. That, and that's that's the orthodoxy of our time. It's what I've now calling uh the orthodox church of western liberalism. Uh, of course the uh the uh, it's interesting that you brought, brought exactly that episode in the Marjorie Kemp uh, story up because in the other book uh, Cozy accuses uh, Genesis P. Orridge of trying to kill her by dropping a large rock a large stone actually a lump of concrete yeah. off the top of a, of a balcony to uh, to the, the back garden below where she's sunbathing shit so what do you make of all that shit? Do you want to talk about it? Not really. Um, I was thinking that in books where there are three stories going on, uh, there is always one story that you wish would just go away. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking of uh, Anthony Burgess's The End of the World News, mm. where the most interesting thing about it is the Freud biography. And you keep having to sit through Trotsky in New York. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm because not sure of this... what you mean. I mean, what I'm getting at is I haven't, and I'm not sure I want to really look into these questions about Genesis Porridge and whether or not he was a criminal lunatic. <sighs> Maybe you can summarize that briefly for me so I don't have to. Oh. <sighs> Well, he was uh, certainly um, certainly very manipulative. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if throwing stones at people like that mm. is is not just a little bit weird, that's no, no, that's that's actually right, full on psychopathic. Yeah, yeah. and I mean the uh, the most disturbing bit in the uh, in the Re Sisters book is is the one where. Um, She's suddenly obliged to have uh, sex with one of his friends. Yeah, uh, it's very interesting that she kept that accusation back for the Re Sisters book, which of course is later. Yeah, yeah, it's... and it didn't appear in the uh, in the uh, in well, well, it hasn't. I'm not quite through art, sex, music yeah, but yet. Porridge, but, uh, is, Porridge is dead, and uh, by by the time she's writing yeah. these sisters, that might have been the yeah. the difference. Because, I mean, if I mean, she knows as well. She's. I mean, the, here's the thing about um, Cozy is that in the in the video interviews I've seen of her, and uh, you know, the audio interviews, she comes across as a very attractive person, just very. Very appealing, mm-hmm. just nice. The kind of person I could very much enjoy in spending time with. Mm-hmm. The book, on the other hand, uh, 
just seems it seems like she's not really a writer and i don't know mm. i mean obviously she is because she wrote a book she wrote these two books but it's mm. it doesn't have the same voice at all it doesn't hmm. it doesn't work the same way for me so i read that passage in resisters um and sorry i what's she must have chosen to put this in here for a reason hmm. and knowing that the person who's accused basically is is dead um and can't uh, can't can't argue with it but of course that's also a reason to not put it in a previous book so that you don't have to deal with the arguing because no matter yeah. what way you look at it it's what can what can really come of it um you'll get some people on your side and you'll get other people going you know she's crazy um and and people and then a lot of people like me who just don't know what to make of it yeah um yeah. and i don't i i i'm not no none of us are really in a position to adjudicate how truthful the account no, is no 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 I, i i wouldn't wouldn't get into that at all yeah but i mean if but it does it's awfully easy to understand or to imagine porridge being an unstable dangerous person it's awfully easy yeah. to imagine it's, it's certainly how he comes across yeah and i'm not talking about the books no i mean it does go quite well for the kind of frontman for the these bands he was in it's it works for that mm but it doesn't necessarily work for i mean you remember what you said about prince uh, sorry not prince about the um uh what was the name of the prince's character in uh in the, the kid the kid you remember that the comment about that yeah. maybe a genius but mm, maybe not boyfriend yeah exactly <laughs> yes you know, just to put it mildly yeah well okay to sum up um The film is actually yeah that's worth watching. Yeah, it's it's a nice one and a half hour long thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I can't imagine quite what the film of art sex music is going to be like. Is that still in production? <sighs> Good question. Did you got to the end of um well, did you get to the end of Recesses? Yeah, you did. Yes. Oh yes, yeah. And uh, what was the what was the status at the end of the book? Um, the, it's not as good a book as art sex music. <laughs> Sorry, the status of the movie in the, at the oh, end. Oh, I, I see. Sister. Um, no, I think, I think they, were they, oh God, I must have lost interest. I think they, <laughs> uh, they, they did actually get, get some money to, to make the movie. Yeah. Uh, oh, we could but, um, later. but yeah, the, the book is, not a uh is 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 not as good as art sex music yeah. art sex music is uh is is actually quite gripping cool well uh the last thing i'm i've i'm just looking this up here it's all from 2020 like well you can follow art sex music the film on instagram so maybe we should just do that yeah well i'm not answering but you can do it and tell me What's the latest um, update? Yeah, it doesn't seem to have... I think the last update was in 21. 
No, that's not what it promises. Yeah, the way the way it seemed to me, so far as I gleaned it from the book, I read a bit more than two thirds of the book before I ran out of time. um, Was it looked stalled to me, or it felt like it was stalled? Hmm. Well, I don't know. Maybe it'll uh, maybe it'll get shaken out of its. uh, I I would actually uh, like to see it just for the. Because you know, obviously, I missed all of the all of the coom stuff when I was a kid. Most didn't of us we did. All? Yeah, uh, even seeing stuff like that on, um, you know, in some kind of filmic reproduction would be. Did you watch the um, the fairly recent uh, documentary? I think it was called "An Oral History of Coom and Throbbing Gristle." No, I didn't. Yeah, it's it's a one hour long thing. Um I will make sure that we've got that in the in the uh, substack. In the substack page. Yes, it's on YouTube and it's it's it, I actually found it rather depressing. Um mm. because the way it worked at the end has to do with this trajectory that I talked about. Ah, because right. You know, they've got their history, right? Yeah. And then there's a throbbing gristle uh reunion concert in i think 2008 uh and then we've got it closes off with some recent interviews and i'm talking so like 2010s sometime late 2010s people just talking just a few words to to look back on what they felt they accomplished or whether or not it was a good idea or not and the way I the way I kind of walked away from that, of course, this is in the context of some extremely bad mm. news going on in the world right now, but mm. uh, that 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 affects my interpretation of everything. But it seemed like Delia, sixties, felt like for a while UK might be coming out of its post-war malaise with some color, some imagination, some art, some vibrancy, mm. some some beauty 70s very very well represented by Coombe Throbbing Gristle Psychic TV Um, and then we're into Thatcher and Reagan and that period begins and it hasn't even started to end well it has actually kind of in 2022 it started to end but Maybe we'll have to see how that shakes out. But and then we spent that period just in, yeah, the capitalists have regained control and we are subservient. Um, And not just control in those countries, global control. Yeah, it's true. God damn it. Uh, So that's uh, that's Mm. that's the that seemed like the period they were looking back on saying, well, back in the 70s, we were Mm. we were asking what seemed to be relevant questions. We were challenging, and we didn't have the answers. But it seemed like these were things we needed to needed to bring up. And, yeah, you can't change the world. You can't change the world with culture. It's something we would like to believe when we're, mm. when we're young and trying to be artists, but glo- mm. global capitalism is too strong for that. Well, fortunately, you can get hold of a copy of Art Sex Music quite cheaply. 
<laughs> you don't it's need certainly... too many, too many, uh, too many uh, weeks of pocket money for it, yeah. No, no, it's um, the it's in the the uh, Faber and Faber have got a um, a, a series of, of books about uh, basically about music uh, called Faber Greatest Hits, and I've read a few of them, and they're you know they they really uh, they cost about I don't know six quid or something like that. That's good. That's all right. So yeah, there's uh, there's there's this. I've read uh, Rob Young's Electric Eden. I read Girl in a Band by Kim Gordon. Of uh-huh. uh, oh, oh yeah, you know, there's a, there's a, there's another one to talk about, eh? Mm. What yeah. Do you think? <sighs> no, I wasn't so struck by that. Yeah, because you had I you mean, had asked question you had asked a question about uh, metal machine music. Oh yes. Right, and so that leads to Sonic Youth. Yeah, rather obviously. All right. Well, listeners, if you would like us to write in, one If you would like us to discuss metal machine music, <laughs> or text three two three, or Kim Gordon's girl in a band, yeah. which. Uh, yeah, no, if you don't want to okay. read it again, that's fine. No, we should we should choose something else. Okay, but um, yeah, I think actually for my for my introduction to uh, to this kind of music, that's that's been fairly painless. Tom. What do you Thank mean? You. What do you mean this kind of music? What's that? Uh, well, no, not not Delia Derbyshire, but uh, but Throbbing Gristle. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, noise as a confrontational thing, um, as a and also almost like a, a celebratory thing for audiences that enjoy it, uh, is you know that was that was a, a a genre that persisted, I guess, successfully through till the twentieth the twenty first century. I'm not sure what's going on with it now, to be honest, but that was that was me for a while. Oh, that's where I, I plied my trade for a bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Blood Money did two albums that basically yeah. a noise band. So I guess in a sense we were successors to the same kind of thing that Cozy was doing. Wow. Yeah, it's great. Love it. There's nothing okay. better than for expressing a bad mood than a throbbing gristle song laying it bare <laughs> alright okay. are we done here? I think so put it off then alright Thank you. 